Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by DT Max, a writer and most recently the author of Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. We'll be talking about why Wallace always wanted to be reconciled to a single version of himself and what his use of wiper fluid on a car journey with Jonathan Franzen can tell us about his prose style. Hi, um, welcome to The Basement and thank you for coming to join me and talk about Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. Um, one of the things that really struck me about this book is that you resist the temptation to fill in the blanks, to go behind the, man- the bandana, so to speak, and to, to sort of ventriloquise Wallace in his, um, in his darker moments, say, in, in the really bleak moments of despair and breakdown and Um, I thought that was remarkably controlled of you as a writer and as as an observer of him. And I think whilst the book's full of intimacy and and awareness of his his many, the many versions of himself, it seems that you, you take, your prose takes a different approach to rendering him. And I think I just wanted to ask you if that was a conscious decision or something you found yourself doing. It's a good question, and um, I sort of have two answers for it. But first, thank you for having me in the basement. Um, and it really is a basement, if anyone's doubting that anyone thinks that's a figure of speech, we are, we're in the basement. <laughs> um, well, a couple of things are operative. In the first place, I, I think in the modern era, you just have to approach biography with a certain amount of modesty. I mean, you, you, can't, <clears throat> you can't really... There, you know, in another time when you could be a Freudian in a biographer, you could sort of happily traipse around in the inside of somebody's head because you knew that you had a kind of construct with which to understand their thoughts. But I'm I'm not a Freudian, and, and I don't know that anyone really has an overwhelming theory of personality to apply um, to, to anyone, let alone to a writer as complicated as David. And then, I mean, there's just the matter of, of how I personally look at people. And, and you know, if I, I mean, I did not know David in person, but... I certainly had plenty of thoughts about who he must be before I began writing the biography. And I always felt that a person with a mind as complicated as David and, and a mind as active and a mind that was so prone to so prone to um, the kind of meta level of conception and thought, you know, that that person would give themselves to you in their letters or in or in their speech that you wouldn't really have to do. You don't have to speculate about David, really, because David gives you himself. I mean, I had a couple hundred... Of his of the letters he sent to friends, but even if I hadn't, you know, I I think that David is is at once a, a figure of great complexity, but also somebody who, because he spent so much time examining his inner self, I mean, it was it was up to a certain point in his life his great subject, and it and I think it always inf- what always infuses David's prose is a kind of anxiety about self. Um, I didn't really feel like I needed to go in there without, you know, I didn't need to go fishing without a license, uh, basically, because in in certain level, I think, you know, David had already gone, spent his whole life fishing with a license, and, mm-hmm. and had, you know, I mean, it wasn't as if, it wasn't as if he just threw, threw you the answers, but I, I felt like the answer for a good reader could come out, you know, through the things that I recorded and, and the letters that I quoted, you know, so there are obviously a number of kind of answers of, like, who was David what were his issues, what was his personality. But, I, but I, I feel or hope that I brought the reader close enough that he or she can make that last leap. 
I love how you set this up in the uh, preface to the UK edition. Uh, you you really sort of set out your stool as a non-partisan reader. You're not you're not a howling fan Todd. You're <laughs> you're a reader of um, Updike and Amos and Flaubert, and you your your only loyalty here seems to be to to the texts that you have in front of you. And I wanted to ask you. There are so many conflicting narratives about well this, that he provides himself, but other writers and people who've known him have weighed in and sort of given their interpretations. And the statue, as you put it in the book, is um, is very variously buffed and sometimes slightly defaced. And I wondered, how do you avoid being both? How do you sort of avoid being either a custodian to the statue that he wanted, or that part of him wanted to um, erect? Or how, at the same time, how do you um, avoid writing against narratives about him that are already in the world? You know, it's funny, you're just making me remember that at one point there was a chapter in the book uh, about the statue, which was called The Erection of the Statue. Uh, and because it also corresponded to David's sort of greatest period of promiscuity, I just <laughs> thought that if I if I used that title, and I hadn't even meant it as a pun when I first put it in there, but God, it felt like a pun. Uh, and I eventually, I eventually took it out. Um, you know, David presents a number of really interesting problems as a biographer, but, you know, the preface where I say, well, I was a reader of Flaubert, I was a reader of Amos, was a little bit of an attempt to... Um, there's a kind of person who loves David so intensely and so relentlessly, a little bit like... Um, almost someone who loves a, a, a football team. You know, the the love is so deep that really... Or Bob Dylan. Yeah, or Bob, Bob Dylan, exactly. Uh, that, you know, that person has a real honest and deep need for a really good biography mm. uh, and deserves that biography. And I wanted to give that person that biography. But I also wanted to be able to kind of provide a book for somebody who maybe had only, you know, uh, who had heard about David... Um, and knew, you know, David's become kind of a, a kind of a meme. I mean, David's become kind of a cultural, cultural shorthand for a certain kind of, oh, you know, post postmodernist, emotionally available, deeply self recursive um, no, novelist. There's a wonderful one of my f favorite um, sort of takes on David, which appears actually only in the British edition because only the British edition has a introduction. Is a a description which I'll, I'll just read to you. It was actually written by somebody just in the days after David's death, uh, and I've never found a better description of why you know David matters to us. And um, if you hear the crinkle of pages, it's because I'm actually looking for the quote. Uh, and the quote is: it's somebody talking about like why why they feel um, loss, and you know the usual kind of John Lennon, Kurt Cobain type. Um, you know, comparisons came up, and I never felt those were valid, partially because, I mean, to be honest, rock musicians just reach a lot more people than writers. Like, even a writer of David's reputation is still not remotely as well-known as, as Kurt Cobain. So I felt like, and also I feel like music is just a different way of of approaching people. But somebody else, uh, as I said, at a website called The Millions, wrote that Wallace was like an extreme caricature of many generational traits polymathic, ironic, brilliant, damaged, and under intense pressure to perform. And I thought that a number of people would be interested in David and had heard about David, and in one way or another, they were one of those things. They were, that maybe they were polymathic, maybe they were ironic, maybe they were damaged, maybe they were under intense pressure to perform, or all of them. 
And I wanted that person to want to learn about David's life too. So a little bit of what I was trying to do was, was, um, you know, to be, to be inside enough for a person who had read infinite jest more times than I ever could. But at the same time to acknowledge that really David's life is beginning to belong to people as well as his work. And, that's a perfectly legitimate way to get... I mean, you know, David in the end wasn't really... You know, he was more than a writer. He was certainly always a writer, and in a sense he died for his writing, but he was somebody who really felt that life no longer took place on the page alone, but also in the kind of interactions between humans. Um, you know the famous line, the famous moment in Infinite, in Infinite Chess, you know, so yo, man, what's your story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was very much on my mind as a kind of legitimatizing reason for doing a biography in part about a person who in part, you know, hid. I mean, David didn't only hide. He was he was endlessly recursive on the question of how much of himself he wanted to expose, as he was endlessly recursive on all questions, but certainly a piece of him wanted to stay hidden. And, and so the biography had to sort of be reasonably, um, be a reasonable piece of work for both groups. And, I, you know, all biographies, I think, disappoint everybody. <laughs> but perhaps disappoint less than, than they might have otherwise. Hmm. Um, y- you used in, the, in your answer there the word um, reconciled and it reminded me of the line in his famous Federer essay when he talks about power made vulnerable to beauty can make us reconciled. And in the book, you kind of pinpoint that essay as one of the, select, uh, the really kind of joyous high points in a way of his non-fiction writing pe- of his career, even though it came during a, a period of immense... Um, doubt and questioning and um, trouble over the Pale King as well. Yeah. Um, I wondered, is there a temptation as a biographer to try and reconcile the different Wallaces? Because there are so many Wallaces in this book, and there are so many in his life. And Do you, do you see some elements? I mean, there are, there are some violent incarnations of Wallace, there are some um, tender ones. Tender. There are some sort of nodal ones. There, are, you know, he he himself is probably, as he said, one of the keenest observers of the various Wallaces that there are. Right. You know, when he corrects people for saying um, nauseous instead of nauseated, right? Says, right. Dick back then, you know. Yeah. Um, prick. Yeah, prick. Sorry, yeah, no. British version. Um, oh, you don't have you don't have the word prick. No, we do. I just yeah. it's a default thing. I, oh, I see. You know. um, dick, uh, up, dick up your ears. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, do you do you try and? Um, I think he was interested in this this idea of being reconciled or, or being reconciled. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think David deeply wanted to be one David, mm. and a lot of you know he was into paradoxes, right? And one of the paradoxes of being so intensely committed to one David was that you know he fragmented even more because that that huge brain of his was just never going to allow one David. As a as a as a writer about another person, I don't know that I expect complete consistency. I mean, I, I I've done a I've never written a biography before, but I've written a lot of profiles for the New Yorker, and a profile is in a sense a mini biography. And I think long ago I, I realized that you would that, <clears throat> that you would not see even in the relatively short space of seven or eight thousand words, there were often things that made no sense. I mean, I wrote a, bio, a little a profile recently of a pianist. And she was at once like the most sort of tender and intimate person, you know, and at the same time she, for instance, had a history of, of trying to hurt herself, um, I mean, when she'd been younger. And, 
you know, I didn't lose any sleep over the fact that these two people existed in one in one body. And with David, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I don't... Okay, so one of the sort of points in the biography that probably was not known before was just how violent David could be with women and, and basically how angry David was with women. Because, you know, we have this image of David as an extremely nurturing person. I think a lot of women... I've seen this online, you know, fantasize about David as sort of the perfect, you know, mm. gentle man. Mm. Um, when you were reading that Millions quote, it sounded almost like a sort of romance column, right. you know, the polymathic. <laughs> Do you think um, somebody asks, you know, puts a, a personal ad asking for someone who's damaged and under intense pressure to perform? Well, <laughs> <laughs> some people... That's very unpromising. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you pressure to perform. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, D David was... Um, one, you know, one is always tempted to sort of go to that Whitman um, saw. You know, I, I contradict myself very, mm. very well. I contradict myself, but but I never entirely satisfied with that that old uh, adage, that old chunk of poetry. I think that you know, to me, it's just not that inconsistent to be incredibly tender and to be violent. And I don't know that even before you know, before I started this book, before I wrote the original New Yorker article that that was the inspiration for the book. I knew nothing about David. I mean, I knew more about almost any author than I knew about David. Uh, and I had read his fiction, but I'm not, you know, I read brief interviews. And anyone reading brief interviews now really can't separate it from, you know, David's own um, sometime hideousness. I mean, you know, when he when he meets Karen Green, he, he says to her, and the woman he would ultimately marry later, he says, you know, I'll, I'll be your hideous man. Um, and 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 I mean he had been a hideous man to you know plenty. I just never thought that that was so weird. I mean I I think I would have been more surprised to find that the author of brief interviews with hideous men had had you know a stable relationship after college, you know that lasted five or six years, broken up and then met the woman he was to marry, and that they had two children and, and lived you know. Uh, in a in a leafy suburb in a semi semi detached house like that it was that would have been more surprising to me you know that wasn't David and even though I knew nothing about David I really didn't think that it could be it could be David I mean it's easy to say well he reconciled these cells in his work but actually I I don't know that those cells were so far from one another uh, even you know in real time I mean even when he was in these extremely I mean, when he's in the, sort of the mother of all dysfunctional relationships with Mary Carr, you know, there are plenty of tender moments between them. It struck me, one thing that, that Mary told me that I'll never forget, because I knew a lot about what didn't work, but she said, like, that he used to come over um, and they would watch movies together and she would cook and some of her students would come over. And that struck me as such a surprising domestic scene, you know, mm. because... You know, I, I didn't think there could have been even a tiny moment of, of pause in what was essentially a kind of, you know, highly, highly violent, highly sexualized relationship. The idea that they might, you know, watch movies and, um, you know, maybe even masterpiece theater or um, reruns of The King of Queens. There's a couple of obscure Americanisms there. Um, which, I knew The King of Queens. Yeah, sort of betoken a very bland, <laughs> mid mid middle-aged uh, comfort level that mm. we don't certainly don't associate with David Wh whatever else you know whatever else we associate with David it's always the extreme even that I don't think would have been for me that 
shocking. You know, I mean, one thing about David that that people forget is how, um, and I think it's why he could be the writer he was, is how human he was. You know, David wasn't always a, a Luftman. She wasn't always somebody insisting on, you know, doctrinaire adhesion either to the sort of, you know, uh, either carte blanche in the Palace of Pleasure, nor, you know, a kind of Thomas Merton-like um, religious um, uh, asceticism as he got older. I mean, he was very human. I mean, he, he was less, I think, he was less human than maybe a John Updike, whom I've always imagined John Updike, who I knew slightly, uh, as being the kind of guy who, like, picked up his own dry cleaning, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then went to the, the market and pushed his cart along, mm. filling it with, you know, squeezing the fruit to make sure he got oranges that had some taste or whatever. That was never David. I mean, David David was born and lived as a kind of adolescent, mm. you know, and I, I don't mean that as criticism. I mean... You know, if David always had someone else basically doing his laundry for him, and if he didn't, then he took it to the laundromat and he threw it in, um, and, and he read, you know, Rolling Stone while he. I mean, he, that was who David was. But but even so, you know, David. I mean, there's one. Th- I remember David was a great watcher and noticer, and because he was such a great watcher and noticer, I think he was pretty fully aware of all the sort of blander, but 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 worth worth sort of capturing moments. Um, of life. I mean, for one thing, he went to a lot of movies, um, and I think he was very interested in, in movies. But he also, you know, he just, I mean, he just noticed things about people. I mean, you think of David as someone who would never have noticed what someone was wearing, but if you if you read the Suffering Channel, his story, you see actually that David was really quite aware, for instance, of what people completely unlike him would wear. And the point, the point I'm making is, you know, David, David was a very ordinary person more of the time. <clears throat> more of the time than he was the kind of extraordinary extremist, you know, who we more more often think about and, and perhaps care more about. Well, I mean, my favorite story about David um, is that at some point, either somebody wrote him or came up to him at a bookstore, and this always happened to David, and a young man or woman who said, like, she had just bought Infinite Jest at a used bookstore, and she had, you know, read it in 20 minutes, and it had changed her life or his life, and up till now, they'd never really understood the modern world or how to write about it, or they'd always been depressed and never known how to treat themselves, and now they saw that infinite chess was... <laughs> anyway, it goes on like that. And David tur- turned to this man or woman and said, don't ever tell a writer you bought you bought his book used. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever tell a writer you bought his book used. And that was, you know, I mean, that was part of David, too. I- I'm not suggesting that he was greedy for sales. I mean, he was, he was saying there's a practical realm mm. of life, and you're forgetting the practical. I mean, it was, in a way, it was pushing the person away, obviously. Mm. But it, it was, you know, there is a practical realm of life. And, and David inhabited inhabited that realm um, as well. Another story that's actually in every love story is a ghost story is that David thought that he didn't have um, a kind of firm enough chest, although he was a, a big, big weightlifter all his life. And so he went, it's hard for me to imagine this. I mean, this person who's written so eloquently and beautifully about... Um, sincerity and authenticity and almost a kind of patron saint of being who you really are orders a bunch of shirts this is the important thing orders them doesn't just find them orders a bunch of shirts with these like dark rectangles over the chest area which he was sure would make him look less you know less like he had man boobs I mean you know that's a, that is a person with contradictions he's also a person who's just living living life like he saw a problem it bothered him he thought he'd be more appealing if his, you know, if all that working out. I mean, who doesn't feel like all the time in the gym should bear 
more more fruit, and he does something about it. My favorite part is he orders it. You know, I mean, you don't even think of David ordering shirts, like because he. I mean, the whole thing about David is right. One of the things he does definitely reject is sort of dressing up, right? I mm -hmm. mean, is it Emerson or, or is it Thoreau who says, "Beware of any occasions calling for new clothes." Mm -hmm. I never remember. That's Thoreau. That's Thoreau. Okay. Um, uh, I feel like they're forever married, the two of them. Yeah. It's so, so hard. I'm remembering that because it's, it's, it's uh, one of the characters in the Rim of the View writes on the cupboard. Oh, really? The cupboard. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. And, um, and I always get confused which of them, you know, I, and talking about David's amazing graduation speech at Kenyon College in 2005, what I like to point out is I don't think I've read a graduation speech since Emerson's addressed to like the, the Harvard College of 1860, but now I think maybe it was Theroux who addressed Harvard College in, in 1860. We'll have to look mm. that one up. Mm. Um, anyway, with David, so, you know, obviously he wasn't going to go to Civil Row and buy himself a bespoke suit. I mean, he didn't own a suit, I don't think. Um, I'm not even sure he owned a jacket. He certainly didn't own a tie. Mm. But, you know, he had vanity. I mean, his vanity just came out in a different place. Mm. I, it's, uh, I wanted to just I mean, Sorry, it's almost as bad as if he'd custom ordered those bandanas, you know? Right. <laughs> well, there is a way in which his, his identity is kind of composite. Like, it, it kind of, you, you kind of, um, you do this wonderful job of showing how that look became assembled slowly over time. Mm -hmm. You know, it sort of snaps onto him at some point. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think it was, I, I agree that's a very good description of, of what happens in the book. It's, David doesn't wake up and think I'll be grunge. It's sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, he first comes to Amherst College um, and he wears what I think of as sort of um, generic, dorky, poly-cotton clothes. Not terrible. You know, what, basically it's what I went to college in freshman year too. Um, and, you know, over time that look begins to peel away and then he gets, so he gets out of, he gets, he begins to wear more t-shirts, I think. And, and sometimes even torn t-shirts at Amherst where he's a lot of you know, he drops out twice with breakdowns, and he begins to d separate himself from the kind of Midwest he came from. But it's only when he gets to Arizona, and it's so frigging hot mm. that David put, starts wearing those bandanas because you know he has a sweat issue, and all that sweat is dripping in his face. He had a sort of shower compulsion as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, I've never known whether that was phobia or real. I mean, I, I, you know, he did. I think he sweated a lot, but the thing I've never known, and if you read The Pale King. He gives to a character in there a kind of um, anxiety response where you start sweating and then you worry that everybody notices you're sweating and so you sweat even more. But uh, but there are also people who just sweat a lot. Um, and I've never been sure which of those groups were both David belonged to. And I mean, it's it's not important, but it's slightly relevant because I, I've met a number of people who do sweat a lot who really identify with David mm. uh, and who don't have any anxiety. I mean, they're just just sweaters. You know, they're just they're just... It just spits. I just, there's, there's, so, there's, so, there's so much I want to ask you about here, and, and pardon my Portuguese. <laughs> um, Mer, you talked a bit about his relationship with women, and I, I, I just want to mention his mother here because one of the most, um, I think, human moments of the book for me is there's this long period of time where he's really, seemingly cut all ties with her, and he, he won't speak to her because he, he considers a lot of the trouble that he's going through and the psychological difficulties he's having are in some way related to right. his treat her treatment of him as a child exactly and um and then there's this extraordinary moment when when he's teaching a class and he calls her for proofreading for grammatical right. you know advice yeah. and because grammatical advice is exempt from from in his mind it was exempt from the non-speaking aspect right. of their relationship I, I think that's right but you know also keep in mind that in grammar for him probably as for his mother was a distancing 
trick. And so when you you know when you call your mom, um, when you call your mom and you ask for the recipe for um, the cheesecake that she used to make, you're also not calling your mom for something else, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I think David being enormously aware of human interactions, and you know, I, I'm I can't remember where he. It may be in the depressed person, but it may not be where he gives sort of six tricks for getting off the phone. Do you know where that appears? Oh. Including, as I think he says, you know, the the, the particular... It is the depressed person. Okay, the, the particularly devious, uh, I'll let you go now. <laughs> um, you know, so there's no... I don't think there's a human being that's walked this planet who is more aware of the delicate, delicate... I mean, it's in his books, too, obviously, the delicate... Mm-hmm dance of self and otherness by which we all kind of find our place among our peers you know i mean uh that's an, i think it's another reason david to predict his work particularly appeals to uh high school or college readers because they're feeling that even more acutely i mean that's a, a moment in life where you're even more feeling you know he, there's a phrase david uses i think it's in um uh e pluribus unum uh i mean eat one of his plurum um where he talks about the U.S. game of appearance poker. And the game of appearance poker was always on his mind. So I, I can't imagine that when he did that, you know, poor Sally wasn't kind of left on the phone wondering how he was, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And probably called Amy, her daughter, to say, you, as David told you, how he is. I mean, I'm just guessing that. Maybe she was as happy to have that kind of sharply limited relationship uh, as he was at the time. Hmm. Um, remember, they weren't very far away. From, I mean, for much of the 90s, David is you know 60 miles away from his parents. He's in one part of Illinois, uh, and they're in another. But, I mean, they're actually both in sort of central Illinois. I don't know if uh, listeners can visualize Illinois, but it's a big state, and you can actually be... If you're north and, north and south of it, you can actually be a long way from each other. But they're, you know, they're really close to each other physically. You know, in biography, you don't always figure out everything. And I, you know, I know that everyone who knew David, including his sister, you know, think that David and his mother didn't talk for a period of time. And I even know that David went to a therapist who said you should stop talking. You should stop talking to your mother. Um, but I never really found a period after Sally Wallace reads Infinite Jest, which contains a very unpleasant portrait. Uh, highly fictionalized. Mm. Averling Condenza. Right, Averling Condenza, the militant grammarian uh, from Massachusetts, um, who's also portrayed as, you know, really as, as some sort of a, a slut. Um, I don't, you know, that would be enough. I mean, Sally Wallace must have been a fairly tolerant parent, but that would have been enough, I think, to cut off all communication from Sally's side. And yet, I'm not convinced that when he lives in. Bloomington, and he's 60 miles or so away, that they don't see each other. Because, for instance, I know that um, when he's interviewing for the job in Bloomington at Illinois State University in 1992, I think it is, they come and visit when he does the interview, which is almost, you know, I mean, it's a very sweetly parental gesture. Now, it's true that Infinite Jest hadn't come out then, but I would have thought this is a period when David's having a lot of issues with his mother. It's the period I write about where he's sort of reading various books and, and putting unkind notes in the margins about um, his about her parenting, you know, describing her as a narcissist or mm. someone who was interested in having a child who performed and didn't really love him 
for who he was. If you want to see this, the fictionalized version, it's, it's written with great starkness and clarity in the story, uh, suicide as, as a sort of present. Mm. Um, I, I want to touch on friendship in the book as well, because uh, Mark Costello comes out of this biography, I think, remarkably well, as, a, as, as someone who seems like a very dependable and kind of consistent right. friend. Um, and Wallace, it seems, even in his darkest moments, was always making friends. I mean, he was yep. a great correspondent, and you know his sign-offs. We, I think there could be a whole kind of <laughs> compendium of his different sign-offs from letters. Mm-hmm. But the um, the limits of friendship is something that that I I think you 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 um, paint quite um, beautifully here. The way that some of those friendships go to great lengths to help him, and 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 can't and fail because there's. There's only so much that those friendships can do. For Certainly, them. at the end, I mean, mm. I mean, all the, all I think all the love in the world couldn't couldn't keep David on this planet. He 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 drew people to him. I mean, I, I think most extremely talented people have a kind of charisma, and that charisma tends to draw others to them. And you know, to some extent, what winds up happening and and did happen with David is you know, you can get people to do things for you. Uh, and so David's needs were so odd and he was also, there was always the counterbalancing force of his life in a 12-step program, which taught you just the opposite. I mean, a 12-step program teaches you to be there for others, you know. It doesn't really teach you to have others be there for you, although it encourages you to realize they will be there. And a little bit of David's movement to simplify from, from his hedonistic 20s, um, to his more kind of moralistic uh, late 30s and 40s was the movement from like, what can you do for me? To, you know, what can I do for you? Hmm. But his friendships, like many American men, were really primarily with women. I mean, all these women who go through David's life are, I can just speak biographically. I mean, you know, when I first looked at David's life, he, David lives in Illinois and finishes Infinite Jest there and goes on to write brief interviews and, and some of the nonfiction pieces. And he lives in Illinois from like 1992 until he moves to, uh, maybe it's 1993, and then he moves to Pomona, to Claremont, California, to teach at Pomona in 2002. So, you know, it's nine years of David's life, and, and David only lived to be 46. Nine years are important in a biographer's work. And I remember when I first looked at um, what I was going to do in terms of research, I was sort of despairing because mid-careers are often hard uh, when you're writing about them. And, you know, David settled down in a way, or at least it appeared to me to have settled down, so that I worried that all I'd be able to write is, you know, David got up and went to class. You know, and then on days when David didn't go to class, David got up and tried to write, or wrote successfully sometimes. But it turned out that, you know, David had confided in the women he dated, and he dated quite a few women, during this period, and and you know, in the absence of diaries, um, you know, or journals, because those journals, if they exist, have not surfaced. It was really the women David had confided in who helped me to write the best biography I was capable of of those years. The men didn't have that knowledge, you know. The men, um, I mean, uh, th- there was one friend of his, for instance, who, and a friend of his. I mean, they played tennis together, and the, and this fellow was a pretty good writer in his own. There was a competitive element there. There was definitely a competitive element there, absolutely. And I remember him telling me that David had never even told him that he was depressed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he never told them about his suicide attempts, you know, and they were friends. Um, but he certainly told women about what he was thinking and feeling almost obsessively because, I mean, one of one of David's, you can see this in his in brief interviews with Hideous Men, but, you know, David was a, was a, um, a, re- a relentless confider who never knew whether all this confiding wasn't a better way to be hid. And, you know, with, with women, for instance, you know, he would, he would sort of lay siege with his candor uh, and his relentless inventory of self-inventory, you know, his inventory of his faults. Um, and then when they would be together, you know, not there wouldn't be so much forthcoming after that. Mm. <laughs> he sort of became like, you know, he became much less communicative, but in that relentless inventory, um, these women would learn a lot, and then in turn I would I would learn a lot. And there's just nothing comparable on the male side. And on the male side, you know, he has two... He has two great male friendships, really. Mark Costello, whom he meets young, and John Franzen, I mean, a more complicated friendship, and, and less of a personal friendship. I mean, one of the funny things about John and... I mean, Mark Costello and Dave live together. I mean, they're, they're, they're university roommates, and there's no bond stronger in my experience. Mm. Um, I'm so close to my, my university roommate. And um, then they live together when, they, when David is trying to recreate his heyday at the ripe age of, you know, 27 or 28, when he's already been a famous author, and then he wants to go to graduate school in philosophy. And then, you know, John Franzen comes on later, but jo- John and, and David, you know, were only in the same city, I mean, I, I'm guessing, for, you know, 15 days out of their whole lives. I mean, you know, they wrote to each other, and, they, and then later on they called each other. Or I, I suspect John did more calling than David. But there was a real relationship there. It just wasn't, it just wasn't kind of like the relationship with Mark Costello, having a certain kind of rich domestic weave to it you know and as a mm. biographer i'm a big rich domestic weave guy i mean mm. there's some evelyn waugh quote i'm not actually a huge fan of, of evelyn waugh's but there is some evelyn waugh quote about how he's completely uninterested in anyone's opinion on religion and politics but the but the ordinary the ordinary the ordinary routine of their day observed properly uh you know can't can help but be of interest. I mean, I'm paraphrasing there, mm. but I do feel that you know there's a, that in the it is in the details that personality emerges. So, for instance, there's a moment where um, Franzen and Wallace are driving together, and it's a rainy day, and and David is driving, and it's hard to imagine that David is a very good driver, and I don't think he was. Mm. Um, but too linear. You know, and I don't know. I mean, just read good old Neon. You don't want someone having those sorts of. You know, even though that's fiction, you don't want someone having elaborate and complicated chains of thought when they have to be, when they really ought to be remembering to, you know, stay stay in lane. <laughs> but it was actually because David, you know, as I said earlier, was actually a more normal person than probably is usually thought of. You know, he did drive, and he drove fine, and I mean, he drove all the time. He was poor, and the way to get around America if you're poor is to drive your car. You know, you don't get mm-hmm. in the train, and you don't fly. So as an academic gypsy, when he moves from Syracuse to New York to Bloomington, Illinois, he drives, you know, and when he moves from Bloomington to Claremont, California, which has got to be a couple thousand miles, uh, he drives. Again, there maybe it's because he has his dogs, so he has to drive, because he can't bear without them. Um, I've completely forgotten the point we were going to. Why don't you just point me right back at it? Friends and Yes, my favorite favorite detail. (laughs) Uh, They're driving, and John is amazed at how much wiper fluid Dave uses on the windshield uh, uh, as they're driving in the rain. Last night, we we um, I joined a couple of people for a discussion of of David at the, at the South Bank um, Center, and David Bedil was there, 
and he made a comment I never thought of. I mean, I always liked that, um, liked that moment just because it had such a funny quality to it. It was so human. But David took it a step further in a way that I really admired, which he said, you know, it's not surprising that Wallace would have such a need for wiper fluid because, you know, isn't all his work about trying to see things clearly and seeing details? And I thought, you know, that is why that detail lasts. It's not just the sort of um, odd couple aspect of, of Franz and, uh, and Wallace. It's because it actually does tell you something about David that I at least wouldn't really want to write out in prose because I feel I was crowding mm. you, the reader. I was I was giving you a somewhat, you know, a somewhat satisfactory, somewhat brittle explanation of of a personality that had mm. so many aspects to it. It's um, the the piece that Jonathan Franzen wrote for the New Yorker um, quite recently. I have not. I should say right up front, I have not read it. I have my own my own anxiety of influence. Well, uh, but I have heard it summarized. Yeah, well, there's a rawness. I mean, even though they didn't spend, as you say, a lot of time together there. I mean, and, and an aggressive and an, an aggressiveness towards Wallace too, right? Um, there is a bit. Yeah, I think he's trying to sort of, let's say, contextualize that friendship. You know, to try and to place it. I think, in some ways, it seems it reads to me like a corrective to his previous pieces. And um, which have all been quite um, previous pieces about Wallace. Well, the the piece in his in Father Away, which is which is much more overtly affectionate and um, reverential um, to his talents and his you know and his complexities. And um, this Maybe is I'm not really thinking of the right piece. Which piece are you now? I'm about? thinking of the one where he goes on to the island, Robinson Crusoe. Island. Yeah, I thought that was the piece in Father Away. There's another one as well. There's there's another one that he read at Wallace's memorial. Oh, the memorial. Okay, yeah. Which sure. is which is kind of just a straightforward. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah um, sure. But no, this piece. Uh, right, the long New Yorker piece. Yeah, yeah. I I I just be interested how your. Um, I I think that there's, it feels to me like that there's a certain amount of grieving going on there, and that's certainly a part of what you've been writing about as well. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be play the role of book critic and talk about a, a book a, an article I haven't read but you know, <laughs> I have some sense of it um, uh, yeah there, I mean there is an aspect of grieving you know my, my wife's response when she read that was she just shook her head and said men <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was such a such a kind of elbow pointy elbowed grieving but mm. sure it, it is, of course it's, it's grieving and, and John was people resist this but John was actually very close to, to David especially at the end of mm. his life and I know that Karen Green John's Sorry, David's wife particularly appreciated John's role in mm. David's life, and I think you know wives or or or, or spouse equivalents are, are good judges of who's good for somebody. Yeah, and so that's always that always impressed me a great deal that 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 she really esteemed John, and um, you know, this is I mean before David's death obviously, but but after as well, and and I think that it actually probably shows two different ways in which Karen Green appreciated John. Mm. But, you know, I mean, there's a desire, the desire to kind of claim David for ourselves and to look on anyone who wasn't just simply linearly supportive of David as as a Salieri figure Um, and and anyone who... I I have a little bit of that, you know, tendency myself. I mean, in the book, the, the heroes... David's he, the people who are heroic in regard to David's writing are really the people who left him alone to write. There's a professor at Amherst, an absolutely lovely man named Dale Peterson, 
there's a um, the head of the Pomona English department who lures David to Pomona named Rena Fraden, and what they all have in common is they, they really get out of the way. Hmm. Um, they don't they understand that what David needs is a certain kind of, I suppose, a kind of mothering or fathering, and not a lot of criticism. But when I really think about it, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, what David needed to write also was opposition and competition, because there's a, for instance, a figure during his graduate days at the University of Arizona named John Penner, a very good novelist, strict realist um, in most of his work. And Penner basically thinks his job is to help David become a, beta, a better writer, and that is not how David thought of these people. If you, if, you know, I mean, David's was an enormous talent, and like most people with enormous talent, I don't think he really cared about the opinion most people who couldn't publish him uh, or further his career had of his fiction. I'm not talking about when Infinite Chess comes out, where he achieves a more ample relationship with his audience. But it, early on, you know. Uh, I mean, all all early careers are the same as my my uh, attempt to paraphrase Tolstoy on this. Like every, no matter you know, if you if it is you, a truth universally accepted. Yeah, that that all young writers are desperate to be published, yeah. and and when you when you're forty and you're David and you start writing people letters saying you know it's not so important to be published, it's really more important to write what you mean to write, and you know you shouldn't worry about being published until you're forty. Mm. And this is a guy who was published at twenty seven, you know, when ruined the system came out actually no 25 25 you know i'm not saying he's not sincere because he is sincere but i'm also saying you know if i'd been the recipient of that advice i'm not sure i if if i'd known about david's background i wouldn't have said you know easy easy for you to say bub hmm. but penner does a great deal does david a great service because penner is somebody david can can kind of write in opposition to and maybe on some way Franzen's prickly friendship with David, and I'm speaking really about their literary relationship, where David begins by criticizing... No, David begins by praising Franzen's novel 27th City in a letter, and then John responds by saying he likes half of Girl with Curious Hair. He <laughs> names the stories, and they're not the stories David esteems. John names really the more realistic stories, although realistic mm. has to be in quotes. Um, and David digs in on the most postmodern stories. I'm not sure that you know that wasn't as real a friendship and as important a friendship um, as the friendships that look to me more more kind of gentle and and nurturing mm -hmm. and, and may even have been more what David needed at various times in his life. But going back I mean, to your original point, you know, it, it was it was really it was really women who knew mm -hmm. David and to whom he opened himself. Uh, who whom he opened himself up to. I just want to ask you finally, um, really quite um, briefly, about his relationship with um, AA and other types of addiction groups and the ways in which I think I see certain parallels between his attempts to become more moralist, I suppose, in his fiction, almost priestly at times in his fiction, and that sense of communality. And particularly the way that, you know, he, it forced him sometimes down on his knees to... In, to sort of contemplate religion despite what he calls his sort of um, hard wiring to think about people like Uncle Ludwig, you know, Wittgenstein, mm -hmm. and the way that he couldn't sort of, he couldn't shut out those philosophical questions, but at the same time he was drawn to that sort of communality in religion and through, partly through being kind of humbled by his addictions. Well, so what's the question? <laughs> I agree uh, the, with you, but what's the, the question? Um, the, I guess the question <laughs> is, is... Do I agree with you? Yeah, well, I, I guess... It's the addiction, I think addiction sort of is a gateway in some ways to his contemplation of religion. Addiction or, or, or addiction therapy? 
Addiction therapy, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. He first... I mean, D- David thinks he's going to die. I mean, when he's in his late 20s, even allowing for the self-dramatization that was a part of David's life, I don't think he thinks he's going to live to be 30, and I don't think his friends thought he'd live to be 30. I mean, he's a he's a pot addict, and he's a real drunkard, uh, and mm. I think the drinking is actually the more... He, he's used to being a pothead, but, but the drinking is almost a kind of death wish on his part. Mm. And um, he doesn't even... The thing is, he doesn't even enjoy... He does not enjoy drinking. He drinks to obliterate himself. He loved pot. You know, pot certainly calmed his anxiety, but no one can... I mean, to me, The Broom of the System is, is, is maybe the last really fun novel written while high. <laughs> I mean, I have no proof of this, but God, that's a novel that, that you know, mm. can be best appreciated in something resembling inebriation and probably best written in that way when he gets to you know so allowing that his 12-step program saves his life um and remember when he goes into his 12-step program he's also stuck as a fiction writer Mm. uh so the the two issues are parallel for him how do i survive and how do i write and you know i mean fiction writers are great garbage men and women you know they they take what's around uh and what's around david all the time is the cliches of aa do what's in front of you to do one day at a time um, you know there's the idea of paying it forward in other words if yeah. I do something nice for you then it's God kind of good to wisdom to accept the things you know right mm. the, all the needle pointed uh, ideas that David at first resists um, but they work for him in AA uh, first of all or in his 12 step program and I think that they I, I believe that they that that may be the first place he sees their efficacy, and it's only then that he thinks, you know, can I turn this into something that will work for me in my fiction? Mm. How do I dramatize? You know, what, what he's dramatizing in, in half of Infinite Chest is is the processes that go on in, in AA. And um, it's the only thing, I, I may be forgetting stuff, but... I think it's the only really positive portrait of an institution that David ever draws. You can hardly call the IRS, the tax agency in the U.S., positively portrayed in The Pale King. I mean, saying it's so boring to work there that you can sometimes pass through to a greater level of wisdom is hardly endorsing the institution. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, 12-step programs, as he would tell the people, I don't know why they work, but they work. And... I don't think well, David's somebody who, even more than other writers uses what's what, you know uses his experience, um, or, or David even more than other writers. What, what challenges him on the page is challenging him in his life, you know. Uh, but I don't think that he ever finds anything as powerful as those hand handful of of aphorisms and cliches and that way of encountering people, not as 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 foreign to you, which was really the way he encountered people as a younger. Man, but as you know, I mean, these twelve-step programs basically say you know respect other people, identify with their with their troubles, which means most of all don't judge them. But it's also different than embracing their troubles completely. You know, twelve-step programs really are about self. In the end, only you can save yourself. And in fact, I didn't know much about twelve-step programs till I worked on the book. I was very interested in how twelve-step programs except that a certain number of people will not succeed in the program and some of those people will die. I had never really thought about that, but I think that that's also a wisdom that was probably very helpful for David because I think that had he entered a program that was excessively supportive, almost parental in its support, he would have rebelled. 
and so when you get to his fiction, I think that his fiction also um, takes advantage of the idea that some people will accept my fiction. I mean, there's no death from it, but you know, some people will accept my fiction, some people won't be ready for my fiction, and that's okay too. I don't have to have every reader, and what I'm telling you isn't actually for every reader. Whereas, you know, The Broom of the System, for at least in David's view, and, and I love that novel probably more than anybody who's listening to this um, podcast. I, I love that novel, and damn it, I still love that novel, no matter how many readings I go to where people look at me like I'm mad. And David didn't even love that novel, but the the problem with that novel from David's point of view, which I, I totally understand, is that it tries too hard to be loved. It won't allow anybody not to love it. It's ingratiating and it's needy. And those were all qualities that David was very glad um, to stamp down or tamp down in his personality as he got older and to tamp down even more importantly, you know, most importantly in his fiction as he got older. And I think the thing he was proudest about in Infinite Jest was it didn't try too hard to be liked. It wasn't some puppy dog that, that puts its head on your lap. You know, it was, it was, it, it could, re it could repulse and it had the courage to tell you you know, that it's fine for you not to want to read this book, it's fine for you not to be ready for this book. I wasn't always ready to write this book. Mm. And in that sense, you know, all of that comes, I mean, every ounce of that, to my mind, comes out of those meetings that he went to and the whole way in which those meetings allow that some will, some will succeed, some will fail, some will come back, mm. you know, and only the individual can really decide. Remember what's so interesting about um, Ennett House in Infinite Chess, and I also think this is almost definitely a detail drawn from Granada House, the real-life counterpart, is if you fail a, a urine test or you break the rules of the house, they just put your shit out on the front porch and you can come and get it. Like, nobody says they're sorry. The door is locked to you. And you have nobody to blame, you know, maybe not blame is the right word, you have nobody to hold responsible but yourself. And I think that was a really powerful concept and a new concept for David, who comes from a very nurturing home with any number of second chances and goes to some very fancy... U.S. universities with any number of second chances, like in 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 twelve step programs, there there is at the same time no second chance, but you can always make a second chance. But it's you; mm. it's not us. Like you have to be ready. Well, I think unfortunately we're going to have to stop there. Although I feel like there's so many footnotes to this conversation already. I I, I really want to. We we need a part two, basically. <laughs> um, but well, thank you so much for talking to me. Me basement is two basement. Like, yeah. I, I, I come back. Thank yeah. thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on the Granter Podcast.